This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libriideaslibrary.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. And I asked, uh, many of you know Richard uh, well, but, but many do not. Um, so I, I was wondering, Richard, if you could just give us a, a, a quick potted history of, of, of life? your whole life. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. yes. It's a long life. Yes. Good. Give you us the really? highlights. No, well, oh, well, well, I, well, I brought right. you into this sort of topic and, how, and, and okay. in relation to, to Labrie maybe as well. Cause we have to be yeah. Okay. Well, originally I, I studied medicine in London, uh, coming from a Christian background, and then the end of that time, went to Labrie for the first time and found it incredibly helpful in helping me to think through the relationship of what I, what I was studying in, in medicine. And then I went, moved into psychiatry, um, to, how to, to think about those things from a theological perspective. So that was the first encounter with Labrie. And then after uh, I had studied psychiatry for about eight years in Bristol, then we were invited to come here for a year to help out as workers, and we stayed for 14. So <laughs> we know this place pretty well. And then about 31, 33 years ago, um, we moved to the States because I was invited to set up a counseling program within a theological college, or as it's called over there, a seminary. Um, and there began again to, to develop and teach the ideas at the interface of medicine, psychology, and theology. And that's where I began to get interested in, well, I began to get interested in perfectionism when I was first here at Labrie, um, with quite a number of students struggling with what I think was a difficult form of perfectionism. Uh, in my own family, I saw bits and pieces of the good side and the bad side of perfectionism that we'll get into. Um, and then three years ago, we came back to this country, and we live just ten minutes away. So it's a great joy to be back in this hallowed place again. Yeah. Little does Richard know he's not allowed to leave again for 14 years. <laughs> 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 yeah, I could just keep going. Thank you, Richard. And we'll Is that enough? That, I, I think so. I think that's okay. I'm, I'm convinced. I don't know. About you. So I, I asked them when you were out of the room just to reflect with each other about this quote from Flannery O'Connor. Uh, any, any quick gut reactions to what, what was she getting at there? It's a bit of a mind-bender. Well, we're a bit puzzled by it, speaking about the sentimental and softness. Yeah. We wondered whether sometimes we're too idealist and romantic, we have big goals, and we'll do this and we'll do that. We never actually get around to doing them, and it was going to end in disappointment. If we had perhaps more realistic goals, we might achieve them. I feel a bit happier. Sorry, what was that? I don't understand the softness. This is a softness. Because it seems actually quite hard to set yourself so much.
Yeah, well, it's sort of the way she uses words, but you've hit it right on the head. I think this is what it's about. It's really critiquing the, da the danger of us becoming too idealistic. And when our hopes and aspirations fail, we become bitter and cynical. It's the sort of flip side of, of these aspirations. Well, I wrote this book. Uh, in, I looked up the date today, and I was a little shocked to discover it was back in 2005. Some of you were hardly born then. <laughs> but um, it, it, uh, it's still on Amazon. It's still selling reasonably well and gets perfect reviews, of course. <laughs> and and um, it, uh, what, I'm what I want to do tonight is give you the sort of graphic novel version of this book. Um, and also to reflect on things that have changed or haven't changed since the book, the research I did on the book, and since it was written. Okay? I came across this the other day that takes in some of the nice themes of this lecture, too. Um, can you read it from there? Way at the back. Uh, but some of, the, some of our, the some of our uh, views of ourselves that come out of this and also the need for aesthetic enhancement in some way. Just in a short while ago in The Guardian, there was an article called The Rise of Perfectionism and the Harm It Is Doing to Us All by a guy called William Coldwell. And he was um, using the work of a psychologist called Tom Curran who in 2017 co-authored a far-reaching study on perfectionism and showed that they believed that it was steadily rising since the 1980s, and particularly amongst recent generations of young people, who, they wrote in the psychological bulletin, perceive that others are more demanding of them and are more demanding of others and are more demanding of themselves. It was, as Curran would later describe it, a hidden epidemic that plagued the Western world, an indictment of neoliberal economics and the ultra-competitive individualistic culture that has come to envelop us. So since the 1980s, a greater sort of individualism, egotism, and materialism that has affected our young people particularly, and as we'll see, uh, social media especially. So they talked about millennials, this increasing perfectionism over time, um, and it was especially related to image, uh, success, peer acceptance, and social media presence. There was a sort of, amongst these people, there was a, an enhanced pressure of sifting and sorting and ranking of themselves in relation to others. And there was a greater incidence, they said, as a result of this, of depression, anxiety, what we call imposter syndrome, feeling you are a fake in an environment, anorexia, cutting, and suicide. And we'll come back to those. So they, they, they used the, the phrase, young people feel compelled to curate a perfect life. There's a sort of inner pressure for that. This dynamic, they said, is amplified by social media, which requires young people to create a successful life and then perform it continuously for likes and shares. 
life becomes a competition that many see as unwinnable. They see how good-looking, talented and accessful others seem to be. The algorithm is throwing it in their faces. So little grace is given to those who misstep, further cementing a despair of succeeding. That was that last bit was by a woman called Melissa Kelly. And this, this particularly affects teen girls. Teen girls use social media about twice as much as teen boys. And they and teen girls obviously are the ones who are looking at comparisons, especially of their own bodies. So yeah, actually this that last bit was uh, was from this particular uh, article in February twenty-two. <clears throat> so they're more prone to symptoms of depression and report less kindness and compassion towards their own bodies. Now, we, we, we need to go then into the question of what is perfectionism? <clears throat> How would we define that? And uh, a number of people have come up different. Here's, here are one or two good, here's one good, what I think is a good definition, a strong desire to be flawless in appearance, performance, and character. That's the sort of neatest definition. So it's all about what we expect of ourselves. And in our lives, historically uh, and in the present, there are external pressures of what you ought to be, what you feel you should be, and there are internal drives. And some of the external pressures you may take in, they become internal drives. So the big question is, is it healthy or unhealthy? Now, some people have the view that all perfectionism is bad for you. Um, I, I take the view that there is, there is a good side to it and a bad side to it, and I hope that will become clear to you as we go through it. Some of it, there are some traits that are healthy and some that are unhealthy. I think of a, a, a young teacher that I was counseling way back some years ago in, in the States, and she was driven to produce the most perfect lessons that she could for her kids. And she would spend hours, she would stay up late at night till one, two in the morning. And the thing that brought a crisis was that her husband began to complain. You know, when are we ever going to go to bed together? When, you know, what sort of life do we have together? But she couldn't, she found it incredibly difficult to break that, that inner drive. And I'll, I'll come back to her a little later on. I think the area that we see it the most clearly, and this is where we live in such a visual culture, is in relation to the body. So the pursuit of the perfect body. As we'll see, some people are appearance perfectionists, some people are performance perfectionists. For, so for some people, especially women, this type of perfectionism is more is more pressing in their, in their psyche. Um, but it's, there are certainly men who are, as you can see here, sort of pressured to be perfect. And I, some of these photographs came, I was in um, a major airport in the States, and I started to take photographs of the magazines here, the rows and rows of women scantily clad, until the security guy came along. And <laughs> <coughs> wondered what I was up to. 
But you, you see it again and again in all the magazines. Um, I have three daughters, uh, and now I have a number of granddaughters, uh, and, I, and I feel the pressure on them from social media and from the images all around us to have these perfect bodies or to create your perfect body from a collection as some of these offer, like this one, um, <clears throat> to get the body that you'll love. So whether it's shape, vogue, glamour, um, whether it's even in porn magazines, viewing these sorts of things frequently make women more dissatisfied with their bodies and men more dissatisfied with their partners or their spouses' bodies or sometimes with their own bodies. And sadly, many women have to compete with the library of Im images in their, in their husband's head, especially if he has been a, a porn addict. So the, the pressure is on. The seductive sirens are all around you in relation to this. And if you're not perfect in the beginning, well, you can make yourself perfect. You can defy the imperfections when age begins to mark you with a few skin creases and other things. And you can even, of course, use Botox, um, which is a little passe now, but I don't know what this is. Do you? Double perfection cream? <laughs> <coughs> That's pointing to something way beyond where we are. <clears throat> and then, of course, the age of cosmetic surgery. I won't give you before and after pictures because they're pretty awful. Um, but the, and, and especially Brazil is one of the countries that has the highest rates of cosmetic surgery. And I think it's to do with the beach culture because that's where you can flaunt your body and that's where your body is exposed to others for criticism. So that, that's in the area of the pursuit of the perfect body. But it also, in the area of technology, we see the, prom see the promise, the possibility and potential for perfection that affects our minds, whether it's the perfect Lexus, this used to be their logo, um, or the perfect um, DNA. Um, we're all sort of searching for that, and it feels as if one day we'll actually get there. Maybe we may even conquer illness and death. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, verbiage about perfect health in books and magazines. And we have that, 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 the promise of that. We have the hope of perfect babies. Uh, we're already in a culture of deformity eradication uh, and genetic selection and nanotechnology, all with the aim of trying to make us better humans than we are already. And we, we're, we're surrounded by machines that make our life easier and more efficient and enjoyable. Medicine that pushes back the frontiers of disease and promises longer and healthier lives. The higher quality of visual entertainment and music in our homes. And uh, I came across this advert the other day, The Pursuit of the Perfect Sound. This company, Sennheiser, promises that perfect sound. So it all gives us the feeling that this is, this is possible. If we just work harder, maybe we'll get there. So we have, 
in this pursuit of excellence, and I'll explain the difference between excellence and perfectionism in a minute, the promise of technology, they raise our hopes and aspirations. They stimulate our desires and longings for perfection, but leave us often frustrated and disappointed because imperfect people don't behave like ever-improving machines and technology. We have deep flaws that it's incredibly hard to eradicate and to change. And then we recognize that excellence is a fruit of uh, good hard work, of commitment and discipline in the realm, for example, of athletics and academics. The pressure to excel is enormous, isn't it? If you think if you were watching the Olympic Games, um, then you, you feel that pressure all around you, and the athletes feel it hugely. And the most perfectionist athletes usually crash and burn. More of that later. And, and the problem is, of course, that the, in this search for excellent perfection, the perfect 10 score is a little higher each, each time, each Olympics. So perfection becomes double perfection, or whatever it is. And then if you, if you think through your sort of life cycle, progression from high school to college to graduate school maybe, to marriage, the, the perfect 2.4 children and the dog, this is the sort of Caucasian dream of the perfect life. <clears throat> and I think we need to think what, it, what is the dream in every culture, not just our own. What is your world? We need to be sensitive to everyone's world. But if you are fortunate to be in the top few percent and have paid off your college debts, then we all dream of the nice house, the nice new kitchen, the beautiful Lexus, the, the, the uh, perfect vacation in the Caribbean, etc. And if you are fortunate, and, and sorry, and even a perfectionist, though, needs a little variety now and then. This was a few years ago when this was around, but it tells a lot. They, one of the little sayings here, have at least one thing in your life that's absolutely perfect. And the thing is that some people who are perfectionists do give up and drown their frustration and anger in drugs or alcohol. I have a good friend who uh, worked in the streets of New York for quite a while as a social worker, and he said that many of the men and women living in cardboard boxes on the streets of New York who had got into drugs and so on were actually failed perfectionists. Their aspirations were huge, but as in that quote of Flannery O'Connor, that didn't help them in life and they became cynical and bitter and hard. So <clears throat> um, <laughs> this has some truth in it here. So let's go a little deeper now, and here we're going to begin to delve into some of the research on uh, some of the sort of low-level research and then a little bit into the deeper research. But we can talk about these sirens of perfection in terms of appearance and performance. So it might be just grades that you're after. You don't care how you look. That would be the performance one. And, and ultimately, in very simple terms, it's about the seductive sirens of beauty, 
brawn, brains, and bucks. Those are the things that our culture pulls you towards, beauty, brawn, brains, and bucks. But the promise of perfectionism is actually very powerful because there's these authors here say there's no denying that when you count up material comforts, remarkable achievements, and other outward signs of success, perfectionism will seem to have served you well, especially in this day and age. We've been going through an era in which setting high standards and devoting an inordinate amount of time and energy to attaining them is considered a prerequisite for success. That's the drive of the culture. But, they say, appearances can be deceiving. So here, if, if you are an appearance perfectionist, that's pretty obvious, the performance perfectionist, whether it's grades or your your work being top academically or in your business or whatever it is. <clears throat> There's a form of perfectionism called moral perfectionism, which is really sort of about scrupulosity. Um, and this was something that uh, our Christian fathers taught, especially in the Catholic Church, talked a lot about, where people's consciences were so sensitive that I had a student at the seminary whose father he told me would never drive more than, in a 30 mile an hour limit, he would never drive above 28, lest he be sinning in that. Um, <clears throat> that's what we would call scrupulosity. Um, and then, and, or, and I had another student who said, because of this, a one page reflection would take hours to do. In his work, time clock questions drove him crazy. Was his break too long? Did he need to deduct for a conversation that he had with someone? Every statement was analyzed for detecting error and every purchase for economic responsibility. Every action for complete fidelity to the rules. Every confession for complete honesty and every decision was it the right one. That's a pretty hellish life if you live like that. <clears throat> and then there is the all-round uh, perfectionism. And this is where I want to go back to the, um, uh, to actually to another student. Not I was going to say it was the teacher, but this is someone else quoting from what he wrote for me. Perfectionism pervades all areas of my life, daily routine, vocation, and even relationships. I thrive on routine and familiar surroundings because it helps me to be in control to feel competent, and ultimately to feel perfect. I don't like new roles and responsibilities because there's room for incompetence. When I became a teaching assistant for the first time, I felt that every lesson that I had to teach, actually it is a teacher, had, that I had to teach needed to be perfect. This was almost debilitating. I would literally sit in my office for five hours and go through files and files of lessons and activities and wouldn't find the perfect lesson to teach. I would just end up winging something at the last minute. <laughs> That's fairly typical too. <clears throat> so let's talk about the assets and liabilities of perfectionism. Is it sometimes good, sometimes bad? Is it healthy or unhealthy, normal, neurotic? Is there a spectrum that we're on? And I tend to take that spectrum view of perfectionism. And here's a, here's a, 
here's, the gives, this gives you a sort of feel of the perfectionist spectrum. A study that was done some years ago of the intensity of perfectionism. So the dysfunctional perfectionists, the unhealthy ones, 25%, the healthy perfectionists, high standards, everything goes well, they do well, 42%, and then the non-perfectionists that they described, they described them as disorganized, unreliable, and lacking in self-discipline. <laughs> now, I think there are some non-perfectionists who are actually happy, go lucky, laid back, and really good people. <laughs> they're not so preoccupied with getting everything just right, and they're often very good at relationships. But in my, uh, in my uh, uh, counseling, I reckon this is pretty true for the general population, these, these statistics. Um, <clears throat> so if you think of this disorganized or this non-perfectionist end, here are a couple of things that illustrate that. <clears throat> if you can't learn to do something well, learn to, to enjoy doing it poorly. Or it takes a lot less time, and most people won't notice the difference until it's too late with the Tower of Pisa. <clears throat> so to describe the un unhealthy perfectionists, these are people who have standards that are high beyond reach or reason. They strain compulsively and unremittingly towards impossible goals. They feel their best efforts are never good enough. They're unable to feel satisfaction or joy in a job well done and they measure their own worth entirely in terms of productivity and accomplishment. Now that is a key issue. Is your identity, your sense of self-worth, tied to reaching those standards? And they're preoccupied with performance and or appearance. Now contrast those with what we might call normal, healthy perfectionists. One of my students said, you need to have another word. So we, we might call them people of excellence, people of high standards. Or he said, what about excellencists? <laughs> Not really. <clears throat> so they pursue excellence. They derive a very real sense of pleasure from the labor of a painstaking effort to meet high standards. They feel free to be less precise as the situation permits. They rejoice in their skills. They appreciate a job well done. And their sense of self-worth is not totally tied in to doing the things uh, really well. I did a, a chapter in a, a book on sport, <clears throat> uh, sport psychology and Christianity, welfare, performance, and consultancy. And it was really interesting to look at the research on it and to, and just one or two things that came out of that. There was a clear distinction in the research on perfectionist strivings, is what they call it, and perfectionist concerns. So setting and striving for high personal standards, and then constant and harsh self-scrutiny and self-evaluation. So here's the positive and negative side again. Personal standards, they used these words, diligent, purposeful, working, and this, by the way, was a sample of university students and community adults. So it wasn't just students, as so many studies tend to be. Um, diligent, purposeful, working hard, assertive, dominant, maybe forceful, very active, fast-paced, open to feelings, 
neat, tidy, and well organized. You know, I'd love to have someone like that working for me. <laughs> <coughs> but the excessive concern, so here's the other side of perfectionism, they tend towards these things, and I'm going to go over these in a slightly different way in a minute, towards depression, towards being more conservative, accepting tradition and authority. They tend to be cynical with a low trust of others, feel incompetent and inept, have low self-discipline, often discouraged and quitting, and feel inferior. To, inferior. They're sensitive to ridicule. They tend to be ang somewhat angrily hostile. So you get the feeling, the tension between these two parts of perfectionism, don't you? And some, so some people are driving perfectionists and achieving a lot. Some people are defeated perfectionists. And they're the ones in the cardboard boxes or drinking the alcohol or taking the drugs who've just given up completely. So, and here we get a bit deeper into the, the psychological research. The, they talk about self-oriented perfectionism, socially prescribed, other-oriented, and then maybe a combination of these three. So the self-oriented, you have high standards, um, and that's what the good side that we've looked at, but maybe those standards are too high. And this is the pressure you make for yourself. You feel it all internally. The socially prescribed is where someone, you feel there's a the sort of ghost of a father or a coach or a mother or even a, your idea of who God is, sort of looking over your shoulder, always critical. Um, and, and your self-worth is contingent on their approval. And then the third type is the other-oriented perfectionist. This, seem, this is the sort of person you don't want to work for um, because they are often critical. They know how things should be done uh, and you need to do them the way they do them because that's the way things are done. So the thought patterns, therefore, that come out of all this are um, one of the, the most prominent one that I see very often is all-or-nothing thinking. People have a really hard time living in the in-between world between all-or-nothing when, when they make evaluations. And in therapy, you have to work very hard to help them to see that there is a middle world because they think that everyone else lives in this all-or-nothing world. The second major one is the need for control because often it comes out of a deep insecurity and how do you get over that anxiety, insecurity? You, you take control of other people, of your life. When you're angry, you can't deal with anger, so you clean and you get it perfect or you tidy or whatever it is you do. And then the tyranny of the oughts and shoulds, what someone has called the hardening of the arteries. That the feeling I ought to be able to uh, look after my children, do a job, attend church regularly, play tennis regularly to keep fit, uh, look beautiful, etc., etc. Um, and they, they also tend to have excessively rigid standards and inflexibility. 
One young mother described how she oscillated between feeling like a good mother when her children were behaving and feeling like a complete and utter failure when her children misbehave and her baby cries for too long. A student wept over one B in a series of A's, feeling like he was a complete failure. Students who harbour dreams of being famous musicians or having the perfect marriage and cannot tolerate not being or having the best. That's really what we're talking about here. It's the need to control, to stave off uncertainty. So where does the healthy merge into the unhealthy? We keep coming back to that question. And for, and for Christians, obviously, we have to ask, where does the unhealthy also relate to, to what is sinful and displeasing to God? <clears throat> so the thoughts and feelings continue of the unhealthy perfectionist. And I hope this doesn't... One of the characteristics of perfectionists is they make lists. <clears throat> I do have some in me, yes. Um, but this, this, these feelings of always failing, never, they feel never enough. There's a deep sense of shame, a shame, the, a bad, being a bad person for not living up to one's own or to others' standards. Not just having done something bad, it's a constant feeling because you never actually get there. You never actually are as good as you think you ought to be. There's something wrong with me. I'm never enough. So shame, inferiority, excessive concern over mistakes, doubts about actions, over-responsibility. Um, and there is what some researchers call a perfectionist reactivity. When things are not going well, the unhealthy perfectionist tends to react with emotionality and defensiveness, or a hypersensitivity to failure and mistakes. I don't know whether some of you were watching Andy Murray, <laughs> but he tends to have a bit of this, I think, in him. High standards for himself, and he gets really annoyed and lets you know it. He wears it all on the surface, which uh, is another problem, maybe. So, putting this just summing these, these thought patterns and some of the consequences, there's obviously more anxiety and worry if you feel you have to be perfect, if your identity depends on it. The te there's a tendency for procrastination. Um, and and a number of my students who were perfectionists would have great difficulties producing papers for me. And I used to have to sit down and work with them, preparing them in stages to get there. And then very often they'd just wing it at the end. And amazingly, they'd produce a beautiful paper. <laughs> but they'd gone through hell to get there. Um, so not knowing when to quit or giving up too soon. Uh, sorry, let me go on here. Um, decreased productivity and performance, a failure to delegate. Excessive checking, list-making, and organizing. <clears throat> so these are all partially good things, aren't they? I mean, you, you want to be organized and neat and tidy. Um, you want to be, uh, to be able to produce well and to perform well. 
but on the unhealthy side, if it's too intense, too self-critical, and this is we get it where we get into more serious pathology with eating disorders, and you have all the social pressures that I've described and the models uh, who are rake thin or whatever it is, um, and, and then you have the internal insecurities of young people wanting to be accepted and loved in a lonely world. They want to be powerful in a dangerous world, especially if they have been abused in some way, and in control in a disordered world. And, and the extremes of anorexia, because you know it can kill you, are really serious. <clears throat> uh, and this thing at the bottom here is telling perfection, a beautiful fairy tale that always leaves you hating yourself. And that relates to Flannery O'Connor's um, quote at the beginning. <clears throat> so young men, there are a few young men who become anorexic, um, but about one in ten of every person who becomes anorexic. But it, it demonstrates men tend to go for the gym. You know, they work out obsessively, or they take steroids to get this um, this sort of physique. And it, it is, uh, it's demonstrating this all-or-nothing view of the body. I either obsess over my body or I neglect it <clears throat> completely or, or abuse it. So eating disorders, depression and suicidal ideas. Um, I think of some famous people who were obviously pretty perfectionist, Wittgenstein, struggled with suicidal thoughts. Sylvia Platt, as you know, took her own life. Uh, a more contemporary example is a superstar pediatric cardiac surgeon in the States whose 830 surgeries over the course of just 18 months yielded an incredibly low 2% mortality rate. He was, he was universally admired. The Los Angeles Times called him a medical miracle worker. He ran triathlons just to stay in shape for the operating room. He flew out of state to harvest hearts personally. He called ex-patients on Christmas Day to check on them. His surgical team was the focus of a 2002 TV documentary series. And then it all came crashing to a halt. Dr. Drummond Webb died of an intentional overdose of oxycodone and alcohol. The hospital CEO said, some would say they saved 98 out of 100. He looked at it and said, I lost two out of 100. So their depression and suicidal ideas are, are not uncommon in this form of unhealthy perfectionism. Relationship problems, if you're demanding a lot of yourself, you're not going to show your real self to people who get too close to you. So you're going to keep people at a bit of a distance. And if, if you are an other-oriented perfectionist, you'll critique everyone else. And that keeps them at a distance too. Scrupulosity I've mentioned already. And obsessive-compulsive, peop most people with obsessive-compulsive symptoms, OCD, have some perfectionist tendencies, some a lot more than others. And you can think of some of these that you may have watched, <laughs> that you know, you can see how 
perfectionist or OCD they are. And then, then there's one other area that I want to mention which has come very much to the fore in recent years, and that is the association of perfectionism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Now, this is a common diagnosis now amongst children increasingly, amongst adults, and it can be a very helpful way for people to understand themselves and the particular neurological struggles that they have. So we think of ADHD, the stereotype, as someone who's lazy and scatterbrained. People don't usually link it to perfectionism. But for those with ADHD, it's an all-too-common reality. There seems to be a perpetual growing gap between what you want to achieve and what you're capable of achieving. There's a strong correlation between perfectionism and impulsivity another symptom of ADHD. You can't make up your mind on something because you want the perfect solution, so you just impulsively act. Together they form a negative feedback loop in which someone with ADHD sets impossible standards, fails to meet them, and makes rash decisions out of frustration. These decisions can then have negative consequences and further reinforce the idea that they're worthless. So for some, Perfectionism becomes an unhealthy coping mechanism. It's a way of trying to meticulously control every little detail, detail as, as if just trying harder and being more disciplined is all it takes to override the executive dysfunction of ADHD. So you can see how all of these things are, are part of that. Let's go on then now to the, the roots of perfectionism. This is obviously a bit of a bird's eye view here of the whole topic. I think that some people are more perfectionist than others by temperament. You see it in some very young children. You see it running down through families. Um, so there is a, a genetic element in some people. Culture, well, <clears throat> There are certain subcultures and there are certain ethnic cultures. I think of Joseph, who was Chinese-American. Uh, his father, another student at the seminary, his father was incredibly hardworking with high expectations. And his mother could not receive or give compliments or encouragement because both of them disciplined freely. But both of them disciplined freely. Everything he said that I do must be done just right. If you do things right, you'll always succeed. If there is failure, something was not done perfectly. This standard helped me to do my best, but it's also caused great grief and debilitation. I'm dogged by fear of failure. So, and I, and I hear this from many Asian Americans and Asian people. Um, it is something in the culture. If you think of the military culture, the medical culture, they both need to be pretty perfectionist. You want people to know just what to do in a crisis. So there's a, there's a necessity, it's sort of trained into people. And then the social media, obviously, create a culture, as we, we mentioned earlier. And then in, in family, well, 
there's the example and the modeling, as I've given that example of this Chinese-American person, the parental expectations and criticism, and then particularly, I think, shame and abuse are great breeders of perfectionism. <clears throat> and uh, school is, can be also with the peer pressure and the social pressure. The number of kids we hear of who uh, are being critiqued on social media in school and being bullied that way. So uh, I had another student who told me that his father always expected him to have the lawns looking like this when he was mowing them. Um, they had to be like Wimbledon. Um, I, you, you think of the bed that has to be made perfectly. The family who sit down for breakfast and a child spills a glass of milk uh, and the, the parents castigate them. You're always such a klutz with character assassination. That is a breeder of, of shame and perfectionism because the only way they're going to be accepted, of course, is if they get everything right. It can be just a sigh, a look, a comment, a gesture, or a word. So this is the exchange that's going to go on. <clears throat> in one college in the States, it was, there was a, some research that was done in an Ivy League college uh, and the pressure there from all the, the peers was be, for the women, was be pretty, sweet, and nice. Be athletic, be competitive, and get straight A's. Be impossibly perfect without effort. And a number of campuses report a high suicide rate when there is this sort of ethic, sort of pressure going around in the college. So shame... And you may feel shame from the absence of approval as much as from active disapproval and criticism. Brené Brown, the well-known author of The Gift of Imperfection, says perfectionism is a self-destructive and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought. If I look perfect and do everything perfectly, I can avoid or minimize the painful feelings of shame, judgment, and blame. So shame, fear, fear, which relates to shame, obviously, the fear of failure, of rejection, of loss of control. And then finally, I think, old-fashioned pride. You know, the desire to be best at everything. Now, it has insecure roots very often, but there are also sort of narcissistic types of pride that are that are just pure, unadulterated self-centeredness, the desire to be superior. So we've looked at the thought patterns, the roots of perfectionism. I want to just touch now on the, some practical strategies for health, because the secular world can say all this, and, and we'll, come to, we'll come to a point in a minute when we ask, well, what's different about a Christian critique of this topic? Um, because all of these types of therapy and counseling are very helpful and practical. So you can, you can help someone to evaluate the pros and cons of perfection, perfectionism. I had one dear lady who often used to start our conversations with 
some very all-or-nothing statement about life in the last week. And I would say to her, Mary, did you hear what you just said? And she, she, had, she had never learned to self-reflect, to think about what she was thinking or saying. And then she would begin, after many times when I had said this, she'd begin to laugh and say, ah, I see it. And she began to try not to do that. So recognizing the all-or-nothing patterns, keeping a journal of thoughts and feelings to become more self-aware of what, what runs through your mind, especially when you're in a situation of failure. Becoming more aware of, of feelings and the fear of the loss of control. So many people who have grown up without good emotional understanding and awareness don't, can't say that they're anxious when they're really anxious. They can't say when they're angry. They just feel something that's really uncomfortable and then they react. So they haven't learned to emotionally regulate in a healthy way. So it's sort of resisting the lies that we tell ourselves that I am a complete klutz. Uh, and, and you can see Andy Murray working so hard in his self-talk. Uh, some of it doesn't seem to be resisting it very much. He's sort of giving into it. Um, and trying to move from idealism to reality. So most perfectionists, in that quote at the beginning, uh, are, tend to be idealistic about life, have this perfect world that they want to live in, and think that everyone else is living in that too. And what you're trying to do is help them to bring their ideal world back to reality and their very self-critical view of themselves up to a more reasonable view of themselves. And then accepting things day by day and little happen little by happen day by day and little by little. Most perfectionists in their all or nothing thinking want to be a healthy perfectionist tomorrow or non-perfectionist or something. And you have to help them to see that there's a whole lifetime of change. And it's little by little, day by day, that you begin to live in that world in between all and nothing. So you work on small goals because they tend, when you ask them to set up a goal of what would you like to do in this next week, that will be a movement and, and we use this little tool in psychology of saying, okay, you want to be here, and that's number 10. And where you are now is number one. How will you get from one to one and a half? Well, they want to go from one to nine in a week. But you say, no, no, I, I want you to work on just one small thing that you will think or do differently this week. So living with imperfection is, and this is from a, a helpful book called When Perfect Isn't Good Enough. If you examine, imagine the, the appearance perfectionist being less perfectionist about their physical appearance. So they take no more than 30 minutes getting ready when they go out. They miss a workout in the gym. They're willing to gain five pounds without upset. That is really stressful <laughs> for some people. They learn to tolerate anxiety. Um, <clears throat> I was working with one woman whose uh, teenage daughter um, was 
wanted her own room. She didn't want her mother to come in and clean her room for her all the time when she went off to school. And there came a time when the teenage daughter resisted. So mum agreed uh, with, and we worked together on this, that the, daughter, that, that the daughter could lock the door when she went out to go to school. And mum was only allowed in to help her at the weekends with the daughter. Well, the first day that door was locked, the mother nearly went crazy because one little room in her house that was untidy was like her whole being was in chaos. It caused incredible tension. Another might be becoming more tolerant of others. Stop caring how they wash the dishes. <laughs> Tolerate a spouse or a friend arriving late. Allowing children to make a mess. Um, children do make a mess. And one of the fastest ways to have your life impacted if you're a perfectionist is to have children. <laughs> because it's constant anxiety and tension. Um, but it might be a, a therapeutic thing. It might help you to learn. Um, we went to Wimbledon yesterday, <laughs> which was a wonderful experience. But um, thinking about tennis... Um, Andrew Agassi, he wrote a book in 2010, his biography, and he describes how his father was determined that he would win and created a cruel regime of practice. Neither father nor son would accept anything less than perfection. Success, wealth, prestige, supermodel wife all followed. But then came the fall from one to 141 in the ratings. A broken marriage and drug addiction. And he says it wasn't just an ordinary spiral, it was a world-class perfectionist spiral. It was slow, methodical, and painful. But gradually, and you can see the seeds of this in the book, because he's incredibly honest, he made his way back to the top again, having learned a lot of good lessons on the way. He says, when you feel overwhelmed, Allow yourself to be a work in progress because you all, you all, we all, will always be in process. That's a good word of wisdom. But behind all this, there are bigger questions for us as Christians. Um, because we have to face these, these ultimate questions of what is perfection? What are we aiming for? And what does God call us to and we have to get into the, the beliefs about the nature of reality and the question of what story do we live by? Is our story one of evolution and chance and time? And what is perfection then? Well, things people hope are getting better and better, but there's no ultimate goal of what's the perfect person or the perfect um, planet or whatever. The second major worldview would be that of there is an impersonal God or energy in the universe, and we are perfect already. So this would be higher forms of Hinduism and Buddhism, where we need to meditate and realize that we are, you and I are perfect the way we are. There's an essential unity about the universe, a oneness. And so we don't have to try harder, we just have to try less hard and just be rather than do. And then the third major alternative is that there is a personal God 
And the biblical story, of course, is that he created us perfect. We fell from that perfection. And we are, if we, are, if we put our trust in Christ, being restored. And there is a deep memory and longing in our psyche of a past perfection and something that is an anticipation of a future perfection, of being made perfect with him. So the beliefs about our, our values then, we, we ask, well, what is really important? Is our appearance the ultimately important thing, our performance? They're all, they're all good things. They're God-given gifts. And some people are given beautiful looks. Some people are given incredible uh, abilities academically or musically. Uh, some people are highly productive. And, but, and I think from a Christian perspective, we can say they're all good things. But we maybe have made them too important. And there comes a time in life when you begin to feel this more acutely. You bump into reality around the age of 40, at least I did. My knees, my back, my brain, <laughs> which is going faster now. Um, disease of different forms, decay, maybe even death. And here is the humbling part of this bumping into the reality that God has made. Uh, as the Bible says poetically, all men are like grass and all their glory, all those gifts, those abilities, their perfection is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall. So this sort of puts it in perspective a bit. So what does the beautiful actress do when she reaches the age of 60, 70 and her beauty begins to fade and she may end up with Alzheimer's uh, in a, a hospice at the very end, looking very unlike what she used to look like. So it, it, that, that, and, and then Jesus asks us some very um, deep questions on what's really important in the Sermon on the Mount. You remember what he says about laying up for yourselves treasures on earth. So here are a few treasures. And what does he say? Well, little creatures like moths may come and thieves may break in and steal. So don't put all your eggs in this basket of, of how things look and your possessions. And your, your nice Lexus, may, although they don't get rusty so quickly nowadays, but that may develop rust um, and, and it won't last forever. So appearance, possessions, performance. Performance, yes, it's good to work hard to get good grades, to do quality work, to produce good artistic or athletic performance, uh, to have financial success. All of these are good, but perhaps the most important thing that Jesus is focusing on is character and relationship development. Given that you live in a world with all these things, the most important thing is how you relate to those and how you relate to people around you. So he calls us, I think, to be a good steward of the gifts that he has given, to develop character and integrity, to learn to love well. And this is what it means to become truly human. 
living in relationship with our Creator. Now, the path to perfection, in a sense, all the great religions of the world have this common awareness of needing to be better. And how you get there, of course, you might just meditate more or you might try harder. And most of them have the Buddhist Eightfold Path, for example, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim code of law. Each offers a way to please God. But Christianity is profoundly different. There is a personal moral universe and you cannot achieve perfection on your own. You need rescue. You need being helped out of your imperfection by a loving God who comes to rescue us, to accept us as we are, to gradually transform us. And grace, of course, is at the heart of this. So in a sense that the greatest key to unlocking this prison of deep perfectionism is grace, is the gospel. Now, that's not all you need. <laughs> you know, it's not enough just to become a Christian, but it is after that, you may need to go back and work on some of the other things that I've described. But if this is true, then our fundamental worth and identity don't depend on our appearance or our performance. When we know we are accepted and loved with all our imperfections, we're set free to pursue excellence without fear of failure or rejection and with gratitude to our Creator. So that's the deep motive that drives us. Are you driven by fear of what other people think of you? By fear of failure? Or are you driven by gratitude to God who has saved you for a particular purpose and work? And he loves you and accepts you just as you are. So letting go of unhealthy perfectionism, I must be in control, just to remind you, I'm terrified of failure and rejection. I am what I do or how I look. That's the deep thing that is sort of tattooed on your heart, heart and soul in, in this unhealthy perfectionism. And it, a lot of it is losing the intensity and frequency. The recovering perfectionist. Many of my clients say that's what they define themselves as now. The core beliefs are often unconscious. One young woman said, I'm slowly overcoming my unhealthy perfectionist tendencies through a very healthy marriage. So God gave her a marriage that began to transform her. My husband's unconditional love and constant affirmation, mirroring God's love for her, have tremendously helped me to tackle my struggles with low self-esteem and an unhealthy desire to hide behind my perfection. I'm gradually being freed to be myself, flawed and imperfect. So what is the optimum environment for change? <clears throat> I think it is, this, it is relationship with God. It's relationship with other people. Perfectionists often tend to be somewhat isolated and to allow themselves to be in a small group with other people is actually a very healthy thing because then they hear about other people's imperfections and they, they, they may gain a safety to be able to share theirs with, with others. And then one's better relationship with oneself 
Um, this movie I would strongly recommend to you, mostly Martha, in the American version. No, sorry, not the American, the German version. It's a German movie. Just tell you a little bit about it. It's a German chef, this woman, Martha, and she is a meticulous, she runs a meticulous restaurant. Um, and she is living alone. She never got married. Um, and she has a beautiful apartment, which is always very clean and tidy. And her niece, nieces, her sister dies in a car accident. And this woman, Martha, has to take in her, her niece. And that is a big challenge. She's an eight-year-old, so she has to now juggle life and looking after an eight-year-old. And at one point she says, I wish I had a recipe for you <laughs> to the child. But uh, in, and the child goes with her to her restaurant and sits in the kitchen and works on her homework when she's working in the evenings. And along comes an Italian sous chef. He's Italian, she's German. Fun. And he is the most relaxed, easygoing. He's the sort of far end of that spectrum of perfectionist that I mentioned. Uh, and he has a lot of fun. He laughs and he gets to know the little girl and helps her. And, and the little girl and he plan to surprise their mother with a dinner. They're going to cook it and um, they're going to, um, yeah, they're going to cook it and serve it. And she's not allowed to be anywhere around while they're doing, while they're getting it ready. Well, she walks in and they sit down on the floor. <laughs> she's never sat on the floor to eat a meal. And they don't have knives and forks, they're doing it with fingers. And this is really difficult for her. And she's looking very anxious. And then she, at one point she gets up and walks into the kitchen. And the kitchen, she nearly has a heart attack. The kitchen is an absolute mess. Everything is all over. And she's hyperventilating and they're bringing a paper bag <laughs> to get her to calm down. And eventually she is really helped to be more relaxed by this Italian guy. And of course they have a romantic relationship, all live happily ever after. But the idea in this is to be in a relationship where you are accepted and loved with all your flaws is an incredibly healing thing. You play volleyball here in your breaks. <laughs> we did the same when we were here all those years ago. And there was one student who came who was very perfectionist. And she said she would never play volleyball. It was all too chaotic for her. Um, until the last week of the two months she was here. And she played, and she messed up, and she really enjoyed it, and she played again, maybe two or three times. She wrote back, I loved all the lectures, I loved the discussions over the meals, but the thing that really helped me was the volleyball. <laughs> she said, I took a risk, and you all accepted and loved me, just with me being a the klutz that I am. So it's this experience of grace that unlocks the prison of, perfe of perfectionism. And I'm going to finish here with two quotes. This one, not overtly Christian, but covertly there's a wonderful value that is being spoken about here. When in the Velveteen Rabbit, the well-used toys were in the nursery. And the rabbit asked, what is real? <clears throat> One day, when he and the skin horse were lying side by side by the nursery fender. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? I think that's the 
perfectionist probably, things that buzz inside you, that mechanical way of life. Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a really long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. But when you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up? he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, <coughs> said the skin Sorry, it doesn't happen all at once, Yeah, uh, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time, and that's why it doesn't often happen to people who break easily or who have sharp edgeless, edges, the perfectionist again, the unhealthy perfectionist, or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been lo loved off, your <laughs> eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and very shabby, that these things don't matter at all, because once you're real, you can't be ugly, except to people who don't understand. <coughs> I had it there. <coughs> and then the last quote that I want to give you is from C.S. Lewis, Near Christianity. It is about our Creator's promise. So if you are a believer in Christ, then he promises that he will make you perfect one day. What that perfection involves, we don't exactly know, and we have hints about it in, in Scripture. But Lewis says this, the command, be perfect, by the way, which is often taken as the, um, the perfectionist's text, and I didn't say this earlier, I don't know where it's gone in my notes, but... Um, the word perfect there, teleos, is much better translated mature. It's not the, the quality of perfection that we imagine, of having a perfect, ob flawless object. It's much more mature, be perfect, go on becoming more like Christ and becoming mature. The command, be perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He's going to make us into creatures that can obey that commandment. He will make the feeblest and filthiest of us into a god or goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, although, of course, on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that's what we're in for. Nothing less, he meant what he said. Thank you. Thank you, Richard, that was perfect. <laughs> I get a 10? Can we, uh, why don't we take two or three minutes, as we often do, and chat. Think about, uh, yeah, think about something that stood out, something, a question you'd like to ask, something you'd like to have unpacked more. Um, find the flaw in, in Richard's uh, <laughs> Yes, and if we can, turn on the lights. Yeah, that would be helpful, yeah. and I can see you. Yeah.
do that. Yeah, and I'll gather you up in a couple of minutes. So chat amongst yourself, uh, turn to your neighbor, and gather for questions. All right, why don't we, why don't we gather up? Well done, everyone. There's just so many bad jokes running through my head after this lecture. I'm really, really trying to... Give us one of them. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Even in response, I just stop. All right. Um, do we have any good questions? <laughs> <laughs> then we'll have Joel's bad ones. We won't rate your questions. Yeah, yeah. Yes. It's just a comment, really. I, I, I knew somebody that had spent her life teaching in a convent school. She wasn't a nun, but she worked alongside nuns. And her, her conclusion over many years was so many people there who are nuns was because they thought they'd never find a husband that was perfect enough. <laughs> and that was just her observation. I did not my comment at all, but just her, her years of being there, she said this is a common trait. <laughs> That's a really. Do I need to repeat the comment, or is it recorded? Yeah, it's a dangerous comment to repeat. Yeah. 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 You, you should, it would be helpful if, if, if we're going to respond. Yeah. To, yes. to so, so you're saying that um, you knew someone who's who said that many nuns were in the convent because they'd given up on being able to find the perfect husband. <clears throat> they didn't think they'd ever find them. But I mean, that's a, that's a really good example of the all or nothing thinking, isn't it? Of the, I want it to be perfect, but it won't be, so I'll, I won't even try. I'll find another way to deal with life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And I know, I know a lot, quite a lot of people who have sort of left behind them a string of broken hearts because they had such high standards and no one that they met ever came up to that standard. Yeah, so they were trying at least, but yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I just have a question. Thank you so much for your Just a quick one, maybe a clarifying question. Yeah, oh sure, absolutely. That's the logical, obvious question to ask in a way because it isn't, it isn't easy to define that place and each person has to find a place to define that for themselves. What in my high standards is veering into unhealthy perfectionism? And it may be different at different points in life so that at some point, you know, before you're married and before you have children, you can have higher standards in terms of your work production. Um, and, and yet when, so many of the students at the seminary had to make that choice because a lot of them were married, had children, and they, through college, they'd always got straight A's. Now they had to accept, well, maybe it's okay if I get straight B's because I've got to have a marriage and, and, and my children. And, and, and we encouraged that. We said, 
yeah, that's okay. You've got to live life. Um, so, and, and this is where, um, yeah, defining where, where the healthy becomes unhealthy is a, is a, a rather blurred line. Um, and you just have to, you have to work, up, work it out for yourself or in counseling with the clients that I was working with. And that's really hard to make it, it makes me think of also the importance of long-term relationships, as in any kind of relationship, I don't mean that romantically, in the sense of people being able to go, hmm, I, like, I see you getting a bit more, um, you know, stressed about this particular area. That's so helpful because it's so clinical, it's such a So thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay. Tom. Richard, I'd be interested to know if you formally diagnose perfectionism. <laughs> <laughs> you know, not in the uh, official diagnostic manual. I know there's work linking it to personality disorder categories. But could you say a little bit about just what it is and what it isn't in that sense, in terms of official diagnosis? Right, right. Yeah, it, uh, I don't diagnose it as an official diagnosis, for sure, as you say. I mean, it's not there as that in the DSM. But there are certain personality uh, characteristics. For example, when someone is described as an obsessive-compulsive, having an obsessive-compulsive disorder, there's often perfectionist thinking that may be described in the diagnosis of that. Um, so it isn't in itself a diagnosis. I think it's, it's a, a way of life, a personality trait that is there. And in, if you think of outside the sort of formal medical system, things like the Enneagram, the, some, many people get into that. Um, uh, the, uh, the Enneagram, the, what, what are they called? Number one, is it? Yes, the reformer is sort of a, is typical of perfectionist qualities. And, and really, a lot of them are very good qualities. So again, within that, then you have to discern what's unhealthy and what's healthy. Um, but do you use it at all, Tom, in your work? Uh, how do you use the, the word? Well, I think it's another lovely example of how you can have very powerful descriptive categories that work very well for life problems and where people and relationships go wrong that hasn't been subsumed by the medical model and the, you know, the, the mental health culture. Yeah. So I, I like what you said and I like the categories you've given and some of them are clearly research driven but I'm quite pleased it's not made it into the DSM <coughs> Yeah, that, that's a great point, because if it was, then it, people get labeled in an unhelpful way, in a more extreme way, I think. Yeah, thank you. What, what's DSM stand for? The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It's the sort of big book, especially in the States. Of, and it has got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> as more and more parts of life get diagnosed as pathological. <laughs> <laughs> yes, list making. Um, yeah. so what uh, general advice would you have for um, if you, you know, have a family member who is a 
protectionist and it's hurting them, child, spouse, mm -hmm. or parent. And it is hurting them. You can see that it's hurting them. Mm -hmm. <coughs> That's a very delicate mm -hmm. and tricky. So the question is, what, what advice would I have for some, if you have a relative, family member who is perfectionist and you can see that it's hurting them? Yeah, to move, you know, try and get them yeah, yeah. It's, it's not something that is easily approached <laughs> because um, so often perfectionists think their way is right and they're convinced that how they do things is right and they may be convinced that everyone else should do it the same way as they do. Um, so you, it's, it's usually in a life crisis that things fall apart. So for this young woman I mentioned who's a teacher, her husband could see that it was wrecking their marriage. And in a way, he had to precipitate a bit of a crisis to get her to seek help. So he, um, he began to be more, more questioning of her staying up very late at night to prepare her lessons. Um, so it's, it's often through a marriage crisis that things go wrong. When there are some folk, you know, when they have children, as I mentioned, they may have functioned very effectively before. When they have a child, everything goes to pot, literally. <laughs> yes. Oh. Um, because there's stuff coming out of every orifice and you can't control it and, you know, your nights are broken and, and it feels like you're falling apart. Your life is out of control. So it, it often comes to a crisis because prior to that, they think it's fine for them. Now, if they're being very critical and shaming of children, for example, that may be an area where they need help with marriage therapy um, or some sort of individual therapy to help them to get over that. But it... How can one say it? I guess where, where that person feels really accepted, they may accept some criticism. But otherwise, if they don't feel accepted, then you're going in with more criticism and adding to their own self-criticism. You can try giving them my book for Christmas, I suppose. <laughs> daughter was at school and you know, she got straight A's, she had to. Um, <laughs> she lived with the expectation she put on herself. Um, she came home one day and said, oh, we've got an Asian fail, which was A minus. Yeah. <laughs> Asian fail. That's a good, that's, yeah. That, that was the common vernacular amongst high school students. Yes. Yes. Because if an Asian person got an A minus, they would feel it's a, a D or an E or an F. An F. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. What is the value of the label of perfectionist as a divine, def defining personality trait that you mentioned, rather than just addressing specific unhealthy standards that a person might have? Good question. So what's the value of the label perfectionist rather than just addressing certain unhealthy traits that someone may have? Um, yeah, I mean, we very often one does just address the traits and you 
But there is something about, as with ADHD, when you have a, uh, a constellation of ways of thinking that go together, it's very often helpful for the person to begin to reflect. It helps them to see, yeah, maybe these come under the heading of perfectionism, and this, this is, these are the types of thinking of a perfectionist. So it helps them to be more self-reflective and more um, aware of what, what they're doing to themselves. So a number of people have said to me, you know, I heard your lecture on perfectionism and everything fell into place. <laughs> Um, not everything, but, <laughs> um, but it, it really helped me to see what I was doing because I hadn't seen that before. Do you want to come back on that? It's helpful for the people who need the heading or where the constellation of uh, attributes you know, would help them for self-reflection, but also for those of us that it wouldn't necessarily be helpful to say either I am a perfectionist or I'm not, then it would be helpful just to uh, address the specific attributes. Is that Yes, and, and I think that it's, and anyway, you can't use it in an all or nothing thing, because we're, we're all on a spectrum of, so I have some perfectionist qualities, traits to my thinking. Some of them are healthy, some of them are unhealthy. Um, and we don't use it as a term of abuse. Mm -hmm. You're such a perfectionist. Mm -hmm. That doesn't help. Um, so, yeah, it's a good question. Thank you. Others? Yes. Sorry, where are we going? Peter. Richard, thank you so much for the lecture. It was very helpful. I mean, very stimulating. Um, and I was just wondering about the place of gratitude and perfection, maybe the absence of it. I was wondering, <coughs> perfectionist way of thinking often is it difficult Perfectionist to be thankful is that one of the characteristics of it? And can learning to be more thankful help to get out of the business? Yeah, that's a that's a great point. Um, I mean, learning to be more thankful is helpful for all of us, isn't it? And and yes, people who have high standards and who are self-critical and critical of the world in general, critical of where they ought to be, do have a tendency to be more negative. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the, especially the unhealthy aspects of it, and therefore are not very grateful. Um, and therefore, to, for that to become a discipline of life is countering the negative tendencies in a, in a really helpful way. So yeah, that could be, that could be a part of the whole package that I mentioned. I mean, gratitude exercises are, are good, as I said, good for everyone, but especially good in people who have negative thinking, a lot of negative thinking, because it's an exercise in positive. It's what? Negative thinking is not necessarily but it is associated. Yeah, it's associated, especially with the more unhealthy type, where there's a lot of self-criticism. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody else. Yes. Ah, you're teaming up. You've talked about the experience of the perfectionist. 
I'm wondering if it would also be helpful to talk about the experience of a person who um, is living with a family member who is a perfectionist and how, um, how one can cope with that mm. and be helpful in coping with it in a way that, so, because, you know, some of the things that you said about shame and the family uh, <coughs> passing it down, yeah, how, how does one, mm -hmm. what can one do to prevent that happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Related, well, so the question is how, how do we, what's the experience of people living with someone who has these strong perfectionists, maybe particularly the unhealthy perfectionism? Um, and a, a related question would be what, how do you help children, little children who tend to who are growing up with this sort of streak in them, who almost become obsessive about things. Um, and, I think, and I think that the sort of simple answer is practicing grace <laughs> with both the adults and the child, in being, not shaming them, not criticizing them, but giving them an accepting environment where they're accepted when they fail so that they don't feel so much that they have to perform or have to look exactly right. Because there's someone in their lives who is accepting them just as they are. Um, yeah, I mean, I, that, that, <laughs> that's the sort that, that it's, it's simple in a way, but that's the, the basis of it, I think. <clears throat> that, that grace and non-shaming and you know how some some children need are, are very orderly and very neat and very tidy and they don't need a lot of discipline other children who are very untidy and disorganized and out of control they need a little more shaping and controlling more discipline um, and 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 the, the ones who are the most perfectionist are going to need the most acceptance, just being who they are. I'm repeating myself here. Do you think are there certain types of questions? I'm just thinking about how often I'll find myself a asking a question like of, of my child that would lend itself to basically like how well, like a performance-based question or, mm. or <laughs> something around excellence. I'm wondering if you, it's quite a specific question, but there might be certain ways of asking questions that help them not have to respond within those categories. Mm -hmm. Or, yeah. um, I don't know, do you have any a list of 10 or 12 right off the top of your head? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's really good because, it, I mean, that's especially with children, and some adults need it too who've never learned it. The way to learn emotional regulation is by helping some to, someone to become more aware. Mm -hmm. So you're going to use questions a lot to, to help them to reflect on what they're thinking, what they're feeling at a particular time, which makes them act in a certain way. Um, <clears throat> so with someone who, who, with a child who tends towards perfectionism, 
um, it's, it's often very, very deeply ingrained in them, some of them very powerful from an early stage. And then if they've also had a lot of insecurity around them, it'll be even more ingrained. It's hard to reverse it, even at that age. Um, but you can begin to show them that they don't need to do things as absolutely neatly and tidily, that we will still love you. You know, do you think that we're not going to love you if you don't produce this perfect essay at school or whatever it is, or that the teachers won't like you? Um, so I think you, ha you have to be creative in applying a question to the particular situation. I'm currently modeling mediocrity to a really high standard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure my children. And then just into, I think, around school and so many other things, like the, the categories are inherently lend them, you know, like the, you get you yeah. at a test. It's hard almost not to yeah. ask the question to end it. So it's, a, it's just something I've noticed that I don't, you know, like a, a, one of my children is very competitive, which can have a good thing, but it's, how do you, how do I talk about sports day? Yeah. You know, that, that's where I think it's good that the race, I'm actually most happy that mm -hmm. didn't win everything because that's part of the problem, you know, that how can yeah. we talk about it being valuable in that way? But it is, it is, maybe that just shows how my brain works, but I've noticed that and it's hard. And you have to really think about how, how am I asking these questions? And what's no, that's, that's great because with each child, it's going to be different yeah. because yeah. Their, their tendency to drive themselves will be different from the next one. Yeah. And you have to adjust your approach with, with each, I think. Yeah. I was thinking about the children's tendency to compare themselves mm. to others yeah. as well. And perhaps there's something in there that one can, I mean, one that you don't compare them. Yeah, yeah. But, but there's probably more there that one could also do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Was there another? Where, where is he? Oh, there he is. Um, we, uh, you know, asked about the role of gratitude. This Zoom question is about the role of lament, and says I have experienced the practice of lament as an alternative to grumbling and self-beating, and I think self-beating means figuratively. Yeah. Um, so you know, when things don't go to according to my expectations, or life in general is just falling apart. Do you know of any research utilizing lament as a clinical treatment against perfectionism? Or is it up to us in ministry and church to provide this? That's a great question. Um, I don't know of any research that, that relates to that, and specifically in relation to perfectionism. I mean, a, quite a lot has been written about the role of lament in dealing with some of the things that may contribute to perfectionism so that, you know, if you've grown up with a very um, shaming parent or if you've grown up, grown up with particular types of abuse, then to be able to help someone to grieve that and to lament it and to not, and to, for, to move from saying it was all my fault, I'm such a bad person, that's why this happened, to I was sinned against, these are horrible things, I can grieve in God's presence and he grieves over me that these things happened, then I think they have less, those shaming events, abusive events have less hold on us when we're able to grieve them and 
and maybe to be angry, righteously angry about them, and then to move into the process of forgiveness. So there's a sort of process of grieving and anger and then forgiveness. And if you cut it short and say, well, you, you just need to forget about that or you need to forgive that person, then you don't allow it to, to be fully healed. There are still a lot of deep scars there. I think we'll, that's a good question and a great, great response. We should probably wrap up at 9.45, but that's very, very, mm. very good. Thank you very much. Okay. Yes. Yeah. All right.